Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our archives and was recorded in November of 2023. Our talk is hosted by our Director of Education, Ibrahima Drame, who is joined by our guest, Dr. Natalia Bishkova. Dr. Bishkova is currently a Carl Owenstein Fellow at Amherst College, where she is also an Associate Professor of Political Science. She is also a visiting professor at the University of Bologna in Italy and Odessa Mechnikov National University in Ukraine. Dr. Bishkova has also held positions at Odessa National Economic University and Kiev National Economics University. She has written numerous books and journal articles on topics such as corporate governance, ESG, and economic development and transitions. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has plunged the nation into turmoil. Though Ukraine has made valiant attempts in its counteroffensive, much of the country's future is uncertain. In March of 2023, a joint report by the Ukrainian national government, the United Nations, the World Bank, and the European Commission estimated the cost of rebuilding the country to be around $411 billion, or 383 billion euros. Various sources of funding have been proposed from using frozen Russian assets to war reparations, but funding sources, whatever it may be or wherever they may come from, are only part of this conversation. Much of the discourse around reconstruction has involved what the country will look like after the war. What will be different from pre-war Ukraine? Will its governance structure change? How will political institutions evolve? Will they address some of the corruption problems the nation faced before the war? How will the economy bounce back or even improve from the old one? To answer these questions, we'll need to have a comprehensive understanding of the damage done by Russia, its environmental toll, and try to form what future goals should aim towards. Dr. Bishkova received her bachelor's degree and PhD from Odessa Mechnikov National University, both in economics. Together, we discussed the war's impact on educational outcomes and human capital, what post-war recovery efforts should look like, and some of the ESG concerns pre-war and how to address them during Reconstruction. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I would love to share my, not the insights, but let's say my thoughts about the ASG concerns in Ukraine reconstruction. And um, uh, of course, uh, that's, this topic is pretty sensible uh, for all uh, of us. And uh, probably in some cases, uh, uh, you will hear my emotions, my personal experience. But anyway, I hope that you uh, really, really appreciate uh, my information and my small uh, small uh, research. Okay, so let's move on. More than 600 days since uh, the start of the full-scale Russian invasion in 2022, uh, the scale of destruction in Ukraine is tremendous. Millions of eternally displayed persons and refugees, hundreds of thousands killed of or injured and many homes in ruins. However, even in these challenging times, it is vital to develop plans for Ukraine's reconstruction so that the recovery can start as soon as possible. Given the scope of Ukraine's recovery, this talk necessarily leaves out a number of other important areas such as macroeconomic framework for financial stability or, let's say, trade policies or institutional development, etc. But early and detailed coverage of these topics you can find in working papers of uh, uh, other researchers and I would love to share the list of my references with those of you who are really interested in going deeper into this topic. 
But today, I will focus on a brief review of ESG concerns that are actively discussed today in Ukraine and may impact the success of Ukraine's recovery in the post-war period. And my suggestions for this hour is to modify the general understanding of ESG from a company perspective into the environmental, social, and governance factors that investors and other stakeholders, of course, measure when analyzing a country's sustainability efforts from a holistic view. So let's go into details. A joint assessment released by the government of Ukraine and leading international institutions in March 2023 estimates the cost of reconstruction and recovery in Ukraine around 411 billions of US dollars. That estimates only covers a one-year period from the start of the invasion to the first anniversary. Continued Russian attacks, including the bombing of Ukraine energy infrastructure and the disaster destruction of the Kahovka Dam, gave uh, have driven that figure up further, of course. The longer the war, war lasts, the more the cost will increase. Let's look at numbers of damage assessments. According to the damage assessment provided by Kiev School of Economic uh, Initiatives, the Russia will pay. As of September uh, 2023, the total documented direct damage to Ukraine's infrastructure caused by a full-scale Russian invasion has reached around 92 million of square meters, or 151 billion of dollars at replacement cost. The ongoing war continues to result in the destruction of res residential buildings, educational institutions, and infrastructure, leading to an increase in the overall damage. At the beginning of this autumn, the largest share of damages remains within the housing sector, amounting to 55 billion US dollars. In second and third place, in terms of damages, are the infrastructure and industry sectors. The sphere of education has been significantly affected around 10 billion of US dollars in damages in this area just for one year. The war in Ukraine, a highly industrialized country, severely threatens the environment and public health. Damage and destroyed infrastructure significantly pollutes the environment and leaves behind economic and social consequences. Military operations led to significant negative environmental consequences. This includes harms to people, through contact with harmful substances, inhalation of gases, soil and water pollution, and destruction of forests. Accordingly to the data, 56 billion of US dollars estimated damage to the environment caused by the hostilities as of, the, as of June 2023. The hostilities caused a vast number of fires that destroy property and nature almost every day. War increases greenhouse gas emissions and accelerates climate change. During the first year of the war, 119 million tons of CO2 emissions of greenhouse gases were caused by the war. Moving forward, considering the blowing up of Kahovka Dam as a particular Russian crime, it should be mentioned that according to a meter project estimates, the total area of buildings and structures affected by flooding amounted to 8 million square meters. Among these 70% are private houses. So that means that 70% of people who were living there are still staying without their home, homes. And um, of course, we have to pay special focus to the uh, agriculture sector because that's a vital sector for Ukrainian economy. And we have to say, and we have to highlight here that impact of Russian invasion of Ukraine is immense. Based on the research estimates as of February, 2023, direct damages amount to 
8 billion US dollars and indirect losses, including lower production of crops and livestock, as well as logistic distributions and higher production costs amount to an additional 31 billion of dollars. To cover the needs for reconstruction and recovery, 29 billion of US dollars is required. Don't forget that 30% of Ukraine's territory is contaminated with mines. We will need 30 years to demine the territory of Ukraine. Ukraine is the home of 35 of Europe's biodiversity, but leaving behind the biodiversity loss of flora and fauna and harm to the water resources, I'd like to draw your attention to the specific aspects that may matter in green Ukraine recovery from an, an environmental perspective. First of all, let's talk about energy sector reconstruction. This sector plays a vital role in Ukraine's green recovery because 42% of emissions are produced by the energy sector, which was significantly destroyed. According to the Ukrainian government assessment, uh, around 3 billion of US dollars is needed in 2023. The key requirement is that Ukraine's recovery should not be a return to the pre-war status, but a full-fledged development, taking into account the European Green Deal, which is also a guarantee of meeting the Copenhagen criteria for the EU accession. At the same time, certain proactive civil society organizations maintain that green restoration of Ukraine needs to empower local self-government, focus on transparency and involve the public in the decision-making process in terms of reducing, of course, corruption risk. In this order, Ukraine has to adopt anti-corruption laws and seek international support. Another issue is connected with national legislation on environmental impact assessments. To successfully receive compensation from environmental damage, the Ukrainian environmental assessment due to the threats and fines for violation of the law should be replaced by cost recovery environmental assessment of nature resources. To achieve this, there is an urgent need to transpose or let's say literally transfer directive of European Commission on Environmental Liability into Ukrainian legislation. Additionally, it is essentially essential to fully adopt the other EU directives such as mentioned on the slide. And the third one, also particular researchers have doubts about the greenness of the recovery plan developed by the National Council of Ukraine and publicly presented in 2022 in Lugano. They stress that compared to European recovery in response to COVID-19, plans for Ukrainian green spending are low and dirty spending, let's say so-called dirty spending is high. 33% of recovery spending planned by the National Council is likely to have positive benefits to climate mitigation and 60% is classified as natural, neutral. Meanwhile, 60% of, of planned investment are likely to worsen climate change with the most negative consequences from inefficient propping up of fossil fuels. That means that the government should redesign land, dirty and neutral policies with consideration of green alternatives. Let's move to the second important uh, point of ESG. Considering social factors from recovery perspective, perspective, losses to human capital will also be crucial for determining the post-war recovery. Since February 21st, millions were forced to leave their homes, seeking for asylum abroad or in safer regions of Ukraine. According to the United Nations latest data, November 2023, there are around five to six million refugees currently living in Europe, including 1.5 million in aggression states and 3.6 million is internally displaced. The war caused and will cause the subsequent uh, adverse long-term effects on productivity and output, arising mainly from two major points, 
lower education outcomes and skill losses. Talking about uh, educational uh, outcomes, we have to say that lower education outcomes measured by students' test scores appeared mainly due to learning and teaching disruption, ineffective part-time schooling, the destruction of school, school building, displayed, uh, displaced uh, students, teachers, professors, and constant interruptions of teaching process because of air alerts during offline schooling. Yes, our kids are attending school partly offline and during the air alerts, they have to go to shelter. And this of course has a drastic effect to their schooling. And the second point here, as we observe skill losses and reduced working abilities of the working age population, Comprehensive research results suggest that total factor productivity driven by reduced human capital will fall by 6.7% by 2035. Ukraine will likely face a demographic, demographic crisis and a significant workforce deficit after the war. Consideration of employers of Ukraine uh, estimates that the labor force might shrink from 17 million people before the war to 11 million after the war. With millions of Ukrainians taking refugee status abroad, the capacity of the economy to grow will be significantly limited. As a result, the estimated employment level gap in 2032 amounts up to 4 million for baseline projection relative to the 7% annual GDP growth target as it was announced by National Recovery Council, depending of course on the initial unemployment level. Other consequences are summarized as you can see on this slide on the qualitative and quantitative criteria. And if we have time later, we can uh, come back to this slide and I can share my thoughts regarding each of them. But taking all mentioned into account, I'd like to highlight the following special concerns regarding the role of social factors in Ukraine's recovery. First of all, I would like to talk about brain drain. According to the data, around 47% of refugees, refugees have university education level and 14% of refugees found an occupation in the education field abroad. Me is a perfect example of this. Of course, education in Ukraine has suffered because of the direct damage to the buildings. But what is even more dangerous, it has suffered a lot because of the brain drain of kids, students, teachers leaving the country and potentially not coming back. Many teachers and university professors were able to find jobs abroad. Under other circumstances, this international experience and high qualification foundations obtained by professors and teachers in developed countries during the war may benefit Ukraine's recovery, you should say. But what should motivate educators to return? Those teachers and professors who have at least an intermediate level, level of English or immediately started learning foreign languages from scratch have fewer reasons to return. And it has a straightforward explanation, in my opinion. The average salary in education and the scientific field in Ukraine is around 300 up to $600. And even if host countries financially reward their return, it doesn't encourage them to return. This calls for strategic modernization uh, in education system. Potentially, I think, mutually beneficial is the international collaboration between Ukrainian school universities and foreign partners that tremendously activated after the war and has to be enhanced uh, during the recovery period. But in some cases of collaboration today, we are still suffering from the high level of bureaucracy and unclear nomination process that limit bilateral interplay and initiatives. The second point here that I would like to mention, retraining programs. We all understand 
that reintegration of veterans, disabled, refugees, and internally displayed people present additional challenge to Ukraine. Apart from subsidized training and education, tax credits to businesses provided from government uh, who are hiring these groups uh, and disability inclusive infrastructure, more accurate approach is needed. There are many government initiatives that were launched with the support of international organizations, and we all appreciate uh, these uh, projects and, uh, in Ukraine. This is a super great uh, uh, kind of digital project uh, foundation. But among others, the grant program uh, exists such a kind of own business for veterans that provides funds and support in business activities. Ukrainian Veteran uh, Fund, um, together with um, uh, Ukrainian Catholic University, launched an online well-being course for veterans returning from war, and it's super important uh, for them. Also, Ukrainian Veteran Fund signed a memorandum with American University Kiev. According to this cooperation, a set of scholarship programs are available for veterans and members of their families. But right now, these vulnerable groups of people have other needs. These data represent the need for households that return from displacement. But in many cases, these needs are similar to overall people's need in Ukraine. Notably, the most critical need expressed by returnees remains financial assistance, with more than half expressing such a need, according to survey. That's important to mention. There is a higher demand for reconstruction materials among returnees. That means that people have strong desire to rebuild their houses, lives, and achieve a basic standard of living. But People can't think about retraining while they still feel unsafe and do not have satisfied basic living needs. People can't think properly about launching their own businesses or about Ukraine's recovery facing uncertainty. And the third one, prospect of EU integration. In the face of EU integration, we may expect, of course, it's sorry to say, a new wave of immigration among students and other people in general. Due to the extent liberalization of cross-border movements, Ukrainian students will continue discovering many suitable education opportunities abroad. And we are concerned that the lack of stimulus programs that would increase the retention rate for Ukrainian students will result in high migration numbers. It's worth mentioning here that to motivate students to study at Ukrainian universities instead of moving abroad is to ensure them with the same high quality standards here in Ukraine, with, for example, the help of those educators who were fully integrated into the teaching process abroad during the war and are willing to contribute their expertise at home. Talking about the high school level of Ukraine, it's worth noting that the meaningful efforts to make the European school integration happen were made. The reform of reform uh, of secondary education resulted in implementation of so-called NUSH concept, which used the basic principles of modern education in European countries. But Still, some issues appeared due to the lack of technical facilities and well-qualified teachers require more effective solutions. Let's go to the government's factors. So talking about government's factor from country's perspective, I'd like to focus on the distribution of rights and responsibilities among the government and people in terms of investment attractiveness. According to the National Recovery Plan, you can see here on the slide, the key assumptions of the green future are European integration and national security. The latest paramount achievement of the Ukrainian government was obtained in June 2023, when Ukraine has been granted EU candidate status. But formal negotiations would not begin until conditional reforms are carried out. This include, of course, bolstering the rule of law and fighting corruption. 
And Ukrainian government is fully committed to meeting these requirements. Ukraine has successfully addressed the reform of two key judicial government bodies, the High Council of Justice and the High Qualification Commission of Judges. And moreover, I have to say that according to survey, recent survey, 60% of Ukrainians think that the corruption fight is really going on. In this process, of course, transparency and disclosure due to digitalization are played a meaningful role. And on this slide, you can see just a few successful digital projects supported by the government and highly appreciated in the society. It helps really us, uh, helps us Ukrainians and foreign partners to understand better what is going on in Ukraine. And recently, Ukrainian parliament removed key obstacle to the start of EU accession negotiation and signed in October 2023 the so-called law about PEPs, politically exposed persons. Of course, it has different long um, judicial um, name, but in uh, society we are saying like law about PEPs. The main innovation is that instead, instead of three years after taking government office, top government officials will actually have lifetime, lifetime PEP status and enhanced financial monitoring of money transactions can be applied. Also, essential changes were made in terms of submission of declaration by military personnel. A promising sign for Ukraine's future recovery is the signed agreement with BlackRock Financial Market Advisory on providing support service to the Ukraine Development Fund. The main goal of the fund's creation is to attract private and public capital for implementing large-scale business projects in Ukraine. And knowing the clear commitment of BlackRock to ESG standards, despite the recent statement of Larry Fink, that collaboration brought a new perspective to the table. And it definitely served as a positive signal to all investors around the globe. But at the same time, it's crucial to consider certain pitfalls that may limit some of the mentioned positive changes. First of all, minority ownership rights. While policymakers name privatization as the main driving force for making state-owned entities more effective, competitive, greener, we still cannot guarantee the protection of the rights of minority shareholders due to the lack of appropriate legislation. legislation. I did my PhD thesis uh, about the corporate-related issues in 2012 and mentioned it as an issue, but things are still there. In 2017, with a view to implementing EU directive about takeover bids, the national lawmaker adopted new legislation enabling a person who had acquired a dominant interest in a joint stock company to require all remaining shareholders to sell them their shares. Since then, squeeze out, that's the name of this uh, uh, procedure in Ukraine, have become a widespread practice and results in numerous abuses of the minority shareholders' rights, and to some extent discredit the ideas of a takeover bid and squeeze out. Thus, privatization will create a tremendous opportunity for the institutional investors who will be able to buy a significant amount of Ukrainian assets. But at the same time, it limits the investment possibilities for common people. With that, Ukrainian financial market will remain illiquid, inefficient, and just a formal component of the national economy. The second, uh, the second pillar here, anti-corruption reforms. This is a very sensitive uh, topic for every Ukrainian, just believe me. Um, but before going into my concern regarding this, I just want to mention that some countries before joining the European Union also had a significant level of corruption and overcame it later. 
like a milestone among anti-corruption actions uh, became the law, as I already mentioned, about financial monitoring of politi politically exposed persons of top A level. The main threat of this law uh, lies in enhanced monitoring of PEP and their close relatives within 12 months after dismissal, which may cause abuse of enhanced financial monitoring by non-bank financial institutions or banks, groundless refusal to make a transaction or even open or continue maintaining an account. Despite the good intention to implement FATF practice in Ukraine reality, it is worth noting that around 53% of the national bank system is controlled by the state through the recently nationalized private bank. And this makes PEPs pretty vulnerable. The National Bank of Ukraine is still working on the risk measurement procedure improvement in order to protect PEPs. Meanwhile, many PEPs considered this bill as a punishment for being civil servants. And probably if we see ineffective, non-transparent law implementation, many good professionals leave state authorities. And the third one, ongoing financial and military support. Since the war started, Ukraine has received unprecedented support from the leading countries. And without this, we would not have resisted and highly appreciated. The Biden administration and the U.S. Congress have directed more than 75 billion of U.S. dollars in assistance to Ukraine, which includes humanitarian, financial, and military support. On November the 3rd, the Department of Defense announced additional security assistance to meet Ukraine's critical security and defense needs. The European Union and member states, in order to support Ukraine itself, have made available close to 89 billion of US dollars, of course, in financial, military, humanitarian, and refugee assistance in general. However, there is a still a large gap between political decisions, announcement, and implementation, while people are dying, and military forces urgently need F-16 combat planes. Also, it seems we should worry about the strong democratic backsliding in Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia, as well as the deep rifts between Central and Western European countries. And of course, there is a tremendous concerns regarding the US presidential election in 2024. Uh, anyway, overall, the reconstruction of Ukraine will be a test not only for Ukraine, but also for its uh, partners and international institutions. There is no doubt that it may be challenging because foreign aid could be poorly coordinated or even not materialized. Security issues may be not resolved completely. Policies could take a populist turn. Refugees may not return. But it's also clear that only Ukraine can do its homework and transform itself into a modern country with robust democratic institutions and a dynamic economy. But I want to stress here, the faster Ukraine wins the war, the lower the total damages and the faster the initial recovery materializes, ensuring green and sustainable growth, not only for Ukraine, but for the whole globe. The determination of the Ukrainian people and Ukraine's partners give us reasons to believe that Ukraine's rebuilding will be a success story. And I believe this short talk will contribute to that success. But I want to end with the recent statement of the US Department of Defense. Security assistance for Ukraine is just a small investment in American national security. Thank you. And I would love to hear your questions and give more detailed answers. Thank you very much, uh, Natalia, for this brilliant presentation uh, uh, about the state of ESGs in uh, in Ukraine. I'm gonna start taking questions now. I see Dr. Mari Roland raising his hand. Mari, are you ready? You may need to unmute. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Yeah, good. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, Natalia, I, I thought that was a, a fantastic presentation, and I. Uh, really looking forward to uh, your involvement in uh, future discussions about this because I haven't seen 
anything on this level. Uh, but I guess I have to uh, ask uh, why the stressing of uh, foreign investment in um, the recovery of Ukraine, especially BlackRock, which is uh, notorious in the United States for purchasing uh, single-family homes and keeping people from uh, getting affordable housing. So it looks like they're exporting a, a bad model. But bigger than that, uh, why uh, you didn't mention the the uh, the possibility that a Ukrainian central bank could just issue currency and thereby provide uh, the the wealth just through its issuance. Uh, okay, okay. So first, um, uh, about concerns, the reputation of BlackRock, right? Of course, you know uh, uh, much uh, better the uh, idea of uh, collaboration with uh, big uh, uh, institutional investors. But, you know, um, for us, let's say, we consider that uh, if a big uh, financial um, company uh, that provides uh, consultancy uh, service, if they can make a linkage between foreign investors and Ukraine recovery needs, so probably it's kind of way. Maybe we can just start with this collaboration and later we will find uh, more uh, well-qualified uh, partner in this, um, uh, in this uh, collaboration uh, programs. But still, we at least we need to start from some point. Of course, it's better to mention here that it's uh, quite important to work with IMF, right, or European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. And we are still working with these uh, international institutions. But we really, right now, um, in high demand of financial resources. That's why we appreciate any assistance of international foreign investors that can be achieved, at least right now. So um, regarding your second question about if uh, I was, if I understood you right about uh, money uh, emission, right? You're asking me why National Bank uh, uh, just not to just not to print uh, grievance, right? <laughs> National currency. <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, you know, in uh, uh, taking into account uh, the basic um, uh, the basic idea of equilibrium on financial and economy uh, relations. So it's uh, it wouldn't be possible and uh, it really will be dangerous. But uh, right now, our biggest achievement in uh, the case of uh, financial uh, modernization is uh, to move to a flexible exchange uh, rate. And I hope that it really helps us to stabilize national currency. Because right now, with the high level of inflation rate in Ukraine, it's really difficult to survive. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate your, uh, your input. But I think uh, case studies of IMF help throughout the world uh, is, I don't know if there's any successful outcomes uh, looking at uh, post uh, soviet uh, russia um, you know they they really took a big hit uh, going to the washington consensus but appreciate your uh, your input and your uh, your answers so thank you thank you too thank you mari i may also add if you don't mind mari that uh, given that uh, Ukraine is in an ongoing uh, a difficult situation because of the war. The production capacity really terribly suffered. So in a situation like this, when you don't have production capacity, uh, if you issue money, you end up creating inflation. So probably it would be good to count on donors until you rebuild that capacity and then you start issuing uh, currency. Then you can expect dom the domestic production capacity to respond. Uh, in a way that would uh, help the country recover. Okay, thanks, appreciate it. Sure, and uh, Yanis, question, your question or comment? Yes, uh, I, I have, can I, can I continue on your line of thought, Rebrahima? It's not my question. So on the issue of inflation, I would like Natalia to tell us how much the massive monetary help 
an influx that is coming from the U.S. What has happened with prices in the Ukraine? Like, like the the money that the U.S. is putting right now in the Ukraine, the, this this first two years of the war. How have prices behaved? Has been disinflation in the Ukraine or inflation? Okay, um, I, I had uh, some technical issue with um, hearing your question, but uh, um, can I just repeat it? So uh, you're talking about the uh, dangers of uh, putting a lot of money into Ukraine economy uh, from the foreign partners, right? Like, uh, right? Uh, like financial aids can be dangerous, right? Or not? Yes, but I, um, I'm not interested in in the future, if that's going to be a danger in the future, I'm interested during the two years from 2022 up until now, what has been the effect, the inflationary or deflationary effect of foreign direct uh Okay, inflationary or deflationary process uh, uh, during the last year, right? Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so um, let's say um, I um, uh, honestly, I didn't pay a lot of attention to these macroeconomic issues. But from my personal perspective, I can say that um, our National Bank of Ukraine uh, was trying to keep exchange rate as uh, much as possible just to help people to um, have the same purchasing power of national currency. But of course, inflation that we um, observed last year was uh, was really tremendous. So uh, it was um, really difficult to, uh, you know, like to compare, uh, to get the same uh, basket of products with the same salaries. And and moreover, I will tell you that um, while as I am working at universities, so uh, many universities were struggling and they are still struggling with paying salaries and bonuses for professors. So right now, all bonuses are cutting. So that means that inflation pressure is even higher for people who are working in education or in general, right? Uh, so that's uh, really a big issue for us. But at the same time, um, let's say, this positive um, movement from fixed rate exchange rate to flexible one should play a vital role in this stabilization. So even right now, we can say that national currency, uh, our Grivna, is, uh, Grivna became stronger than it was uh, even uh, half a year uh, ago. So probably this um, action really will help to stabilize the situation. Now, uh, Ibrahima, can I, can I move to my main question? Uh, yes, Yanis. Yes. Now, uh, Natalia, again, I want to second Martis's uh, uh, laudation to your presentation. I really liked it. And uh, I, but one hidden assumption is that this is a peaceful scenario. Peace is the main assumption for this reconstruction project. So how you're gonna have peace if you don't have a rapprochement and reconciliation with Russia, which currently holds about a quarter of Ukraine's territory. And so my question is, do these numbers assume that this territory will be reintegrated back to Ukraine or that you're going to try to get it back from Russia because that second scenario doesn't seem it's, got, it's, it's very pragmatically feasible, unfortunately, for, 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 for Ukraine. So if, if, if this scenario assumes a Western affiliation of Ukraine, that creates a danger, like, like the, 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 the danger of permanent uh, conflict with Russia, 
which will undermine any investment uh, incentives for any foreigners to invest in Ukraine if Ukraine doesn't achieve lasting peace with Russia. So I want you to, 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 to comment on this conundrum. Uh, I would like to ask um, uh, help in the summary of this question because I had some technical problem just to hear you well. So maybe you can <laughs> repeat uh, it. I mean, if you want, I can I can just make it short. I think uh, the audio on Yanis end is not easy to catch, but I think uh, he said the scenario that you presented, is it based on the assumption that you would have a peace settlement with Russia? No. This, uh, um, the main um, idea of national recovery plan um, is to take back our territories. Okay. And uh, not only because this is like revenge, you know, or a, a very ambitious um, goal, just because it is our land. And if we give up, can you imagine what will feel people and families members uh, who died during this fight? That means this, this really a big uh, price that we already pay. And of course, I agree with you in some cases that it's uh, it seems right now that uh, we're all exhausted, we're all tired, and we have so many troubles right now uh, with our military supply and uh, some tensions between our politicians and military forces. Of course, we have this uh, take into account. But at the same time, from my personal perspective, I believe that we need to take back our territories. And Probably, um, probably something will change in the future, but at least we have to try. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Mari, you wanna come back? I see you raise your hand again, or was it before? Oh, that was before, but uh, I did think of another one. Uh, but I, I... I would welcome anybody to intervene and uh, bring up a question. Um, so I, I noticed that the talk is about uh, environment, social, and governance. And um, I know Germany is, uh, uh, I believe, regretting the uh, closure of their nuclear plants. So do you see any uh, uh, need to be more green by shutting down the nuclear plants that you have? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, by the way, because recently um, uh, we just uh, discussed the question, what if Ukraine wouldn't uh, have uh, gave our nuclear weapons that we had before uh, they become an independent country? Probably if we had a nuclear weapon, uh, it would have prevent us from this situation today. But nobody knows would or wouldn't. So, but um, anyway, I think that um, if we definitely achieve our goals in this uh, in this uh, war, so it will be a good sign that without being nuclear country, we can the, uh, we can protect themselves and we can resist even if a big evil neighbor is going to attack. Well, I, actually, I was talking about the nuclear energy. Nuclear power, right? The nuclear power. Energy. Yeah, yeah. rather than, yeah. than windmills and solar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, uh, you know, sometimes it considering like the uh, very close topics if you are uh, developing or um, nuclear energy plants. But um, let's say in this case, um, of course, uh, it's much better than to develop um, gas uh, production, uh, just using the uh, Black Sea resources, as it was mentioned in National um, Recovery Plan. But let's 
see, um, I guess uh, right now it's not easy to say, uh, is it possible to uh, develop mm. in uh, nuclear um, uh, energy plants uh, in a green, more greener way? Okay, thank you. Uh, we have uh, Joe and Ed Dorsan. Joe, you wanna go first? Thank you for that terrific presentation. Um, it's a it's a very sad situation, and you know, <clears throat> there's a tremendous amount of sympathy towards Ukraine. Um, there's been a terrible human toll. Could you estimate about how many Ukrainian soldiers have died? How many um, non-combatant citizens have died in this war? Um, uh, you know, um, honestly, I am not prepared to give you direct numbers, and um, in some cases, it it's even considered as um, confidential information. But of course, we are receiving uh, the data about our loss. Um, but um, I can just confirm that our losses uh, are much uh, less uh, than uh, our neighbor uh, has, just because they are not value-owned people and they are trying to use people as a resource. And we are trying to keep our people alive. And uh, this is uh, that makes a huge difference in losses between uh, our countries. Thank you. And uh, I have to say that it's amazing to me that with the many thousands of Russian soldiers that have been killed and maimed, <clears throat> that um, the people haven't um, created an enormous uh, objection uh, to what he's what he's done, which has been a, a total, uh, not only war crime, but you. an assault on the Russian people themselves. Yeah, thank you so much thank you, Joe. for this uh, question. Ed Dutson. Yes, Natalia, um, your presentation is very sobering to hear the detailed amount of damage that's been done to your country and what's going to be required to bring it back to any semblance of normalcy is, is staggering. Um, we in the United States have been fortunate throughout most of history because we've never had to repel an invader. Um, actually, we've been the invader for, for most of our history when we've been involved in warfare. But uh, one concern that I, I, I would like to bring to you with regard to some of what you talked about in regard to the relations with the United States in the recovery period is that uh, after the Second World War, we approved, our nation approved what was called the Marshall Plan. Are you familiar with that term? Right, right, of course. Okay, and and one caveat of the Marshall Plan was that the financial aid that we gave to the European countries was to be uh, used to purchase uh, capital goods and technology from the United States. So it did limit. Uh, I don't limit what the European countries and and even Japan were able to do. Uh, after the Second World War from that perspective. I don't know if that is a restriction that U.S., the United States is putting on Ukraine or not, but perhaps not. Um, and the uh, issue of, of energy that Marty brought up, I wondered if you've ever heard of the uh, molten salt nuclear reactor uh, technology, which was a technology for, for creating nuclear energy developed at the Oak Ridge Laboratories in the United States in the 1950s that um, was quite superior to the nuclear fission reactors that were actually developed and have been used almost ever since. But because they had no military um, application, the funding from the government went to the alternative type of nuclear energy. So I would just make a note that as you talk to people in the, in the energy area, that they should investigate the adoption of the molten salt, salt reactor technology. 
Okay, thanks a lot for this great uh, comment because really I am not a super uh, well um, prepared and educated in energy questions. So uh, even if I just, uh, you know, try, I would try to put our attention to energy uh, sector uh, reconstruction, but still I feel lack of knowledge in particular um, technologies that can be applied. But Meanwhile, I would like to say that it's uh, crucial not only receiving financial aid from our partners, especially from the United States. We are really appreciate to get knowledge, to get uh, retraining programs, to have ideas, new ideas that can be implemented in Ukraine. So that means like, you know, the common phrase that uh, it's better to um, to teach a person how to catch a fish instead of just giving a fish. But that's a question that can be considered regarding Ukraine. So yeah. we are ready to be taught. Yeah, earlier, Marty, Marty Rowland uh, sort of warned against taking the advice of the World Bank and uh, some of the other international institutions that provide financial assistance and economic advice. And so some of us associated with the Henry George School have, so, have some investigating experience with these entities and are, we're not too sure that their heart is really in the right place. So that's why that's sort of our warning, you know, to the Ukrainian people as you as you move forward. Uh, we I wouldn't recommend, for example, bringing aboard the, the economist Jeffrey Sachs to be in your your economic advisory council. Okay, okay. I I will keep this <laughs> this suggestion in my mind if someone asks me. <laughs> Thank and by you the so way, much. Uh, by the way, Jeffrey Sack, I think he kind of recanted on his uh, old mentors. He's talking a different language these days. Well, perhaps he's learned something, right, Ibrahima? They always learn after they leave the jobs. That's the problem. <laughs> Others can benefit from it. Uh Next question. I see someone raising their hands. Is that Ed? Okay. Well, I don't see any other person willing to ask a question. So we're going to close it here. Yeah, we'll I have go. a question, Ibrahim. Can I oh, throw a question oh. out? Fantastic. Yeah. yeah so, so I, a uh, great presentation and, and, you know, just every bit of, of, of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, so brave and and opposing the the despot in Moscow, and um, yeah, I did a lot of work in the former Soviet Union in the 1990s, um, and unlike Jeffrey Sachs, I think I had a positive impact. But um, more importantly, um, one of the one of the biggest issues in the former Soviet Union in general, and 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 I know the Ukraine struggled with this, is is the immense amount of corruption. And what, 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 how do you feel the government is doing in terms of rooting out that corruption? And, you know, as, as the sociologist Robert Michel, the iron law of oligarchy, it's very difficult to, to change these relationships once they get embedded in society. So what are your thoughts in terms of how the Ukraine's doing in, term, in, in, in rooting out corruption and responding and making, you know, especially since you mentioned about the privatization, that, that is where a lot of corruption goes off the rails. And I'm just wondering what your feeling is on, on how they're doing it and, and if they're succeeding and what the future uh, bodes for that, that issue. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I know that this is a, a very painful question and highly debatable top topic in Ukraine. But, um, you know, um, I would like to tell you just a little story about uh, our fight with corruption. It's a not, let's say, I'm not proud of, proud of this, but it's just a way how we are fighting corruption on our local uh, levels. So recently, our Ministry of Defense informed society that in that um, diesel and gasoline that are going to be used for army forces will be added a, will be added a colorant just to make it green and red and prevent 
taking this gasoline from the uh, using of army forces. Of course, this is just, a, let's say, like a very strange idea how to fight corruption. But let's say if we see the problem, we are trying to use any possible approaches how to prevent it. But what I see in the future, I guess that the powerful role will be to non-governmental organization, NGO, because local communities are very strong right now. And um, our, um, let's say, mentality in Ukraine Ukraine are completely different from the Soviet Union uh, past. And we are trying to protect our interests and we are fighting and we are making pressure for our government. And you, I hope that you will see in the future how um, local communities moved by local leaders and uh, people who are interested in um, getting better future for own children, how they will change the Ukraine recovery plan. But of course, this is a bit difficult to, let's say, connect financial aid partners with the local communities and uh, the huge work should be done in that. But I guess it should be kind of way how to mitigate this corruption risk. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.